0: not starting worship just yet, but we're preparing for worship just by looking at a few things in our litany. Thank you to those who have uh, said yes uh, to worship leadership on your day off. Um, really appreciate you doing that. Um, I'd like us to look at page three. And um, one thing we're going to be exploring this entire week is bilingual worship and what that means. We'll be doing that primarily with Spanish English resources. We're going to have a Brazilian night on Tuesday night. We'll be doing Portuguese and English. But one thing I'm really interested in and I want to share with y'all is different ways of singing in two different languages at the same time. Uh, we kind of have, we'll sing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore then you can choose which language you would like to sing with. Part of the inspiration for this is I saw in the registration list uh, uh, several churches with uh, Spanish-language names, uh, and uh, indeed have met some people uh, for whom bilingual worship is what they do on a regular basis. Sometimes when we just sing a hymn in two different languages at the same time, it really kind of brings out a majority and a minority uh, because there's always one language that dominates. So we're looking at ways, other ways that we could sing in two different languages that allow both languages to be heard. Uh, And one of the most beautiful ways of doing that is to give both languages their own melody. And that's what we have at uh, page three. So I just want to teach that to you so that when we get to this spot in worship, it feels very natural. Uh, so let me uh, teach Gradually through this place, you're like, "How did we do this before?" But I mean, right before the pandemic, we had a flood, and this place—a uh, pipe burst in the attic, and the entire floor was ruined. And the water just went uh, into the basement, and we had replace all the walls in the basement. And then the pandemic came. <laughs> yeah, bad, bad. Um, we used to have cues here, if you remember, that were face forward and bolted down. Um, and we said, "We don't need those cues back. We can just use chairs." way when we have small groups worshiping? Um, so, we were on page 5, no, we were on page what, 6, 3, sorry, page 3, so we'll sing first as it says in Spanish and then English, we'll sing it a third time in whatever language you'd like, and we had this nice choral sound, and then um, um, Luis is going to read, it's all going to be Psalm 23 in Spanish, you've got the English to follow along, every time it says refrain. Uh, we go back and we'll just sing it once each time, whichever language you can toggle back and forth. Um, when we get to page five, nos odiós, sometimes uh, rather than pitting languages against each other, uh, you can just go back and forth between very simple words, you know, help us, oh God. And that prayer will come right after the sermon. Brian Fox uh, told me he was coming and he told me he's willing to play the saxophone. So um, one thing I've learned, especially in this pandemic, is sometimes there just are no words. Uh, so the prayer is going to start just instrumentally. You can hum along if you'd like, but let the prayer begin with just uh, instruments, and then we'll sing at a time or two. Um, and then I've made lots of assignments. You all have marked your bulletins. Uh, the prayer will be shared by you all. Um, and every time uh, you run into the bold face, you speak together. Ayúdanos odios. All right. Um, Let me see if there's anything else that needs to be said. Uh, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Just choose whatever language you would like. I think we're ready to begin. Let us worship. We'll remain seated for the gathering song. Thank you.
1: so nice to worship with preachers. You all participate so well and sing so loud. Pay attention, it's wonderful. And also, isn't it nice to be a preacher but not have to preach this week, at least not for the weekday? I'll do that for you. You're welcome. But the, the theme for these four sermons is preaching First Peter from an exilic space. I think First Peter is a theologically rich and pastorally sensitive text for teaching and preaching, often neglected or overlooked. One of the central problems that the letter addresses is how believers should engage the dominant culture while, enga- while disengaging from prevailing practices and attitudes that are at odds with their new commitments to Christ's lordship as God's people. So these four sermons are gonna to seek to untangle 1 Peter's concept of election, nationhood, and exilic identity for more recent expressions of Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism. And in so doing, I hope to offer a vision for what it looks like when Christians voluntarily embrace an exilic orientation toward the world while belonging to and becoming and being the household of God. Hear now the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercies, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. In this you rejoice, even now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Although you've never seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Homecoming. So it's been a while since I've been in Princeton. Not that long, though. Actually, I was at the 2019 Engel Institute. I don't know if you know that. I was a participant. So you might be preaching here next time. (laughs)
2: <laughs> right.
1: And in fact, I'm very familiar with this place. Uh, my husband and I moved here, uh, I think in 2003, and I did my MDiv and then my PhD. So over eight years we lived here, and we got our first dog, my first menu schnauzer, um, in New Jersey, and we gave birth, or I gave birth to two out of our three kids back at the hospital, which is no longer, it used to be University Hospital at Princeton, now it's this big fancy schmancy one on the first on the one. And if, if you need more evidence, my area code to my cell phone is still still 609. <laughs> Okay, so you can say that for us Southern Californians, New Jersey has become a home away from home. One of the few places where we stayed long enough to put down roots. But what makes a home a home anyway? Home is, for a lot of us, just a place where we were born, or it may be a place where we've lived for a long time. But it's also a context and a web of relationships where we belong or wish to belong. I think it's safe to say that almost all human beings have the innate desire to belong, to be safe, to be oneself, to be loved among um, friends, family, to find rest, to have common memories, common values and practices and rituals perhaps, and even to experience hospitality. And I'm even speaking to the introverts in here who have been all messed up from pandemic. And, and don't know how to socialize anymore, even you. We all desire to call a place home and may even have the privilege of, the, of calling many places home. But it's also possible to live in a literal house or home and to even be known and find a place familiar, but to feel emotionally and spiritually homeless and scattered. Acclaimed author, Viet Tan Nguyen, explains how the universal preoccupation with home becomes, quote, particularly dire for those whose identities make them vulnerable to threat of never belonging. This has certainly been the case for Asian Americans whose experience with racism in the United States has often occurred through being painted as the perpetual foreigner, the yellow peril or brown terror with unbreakable ties to a land of origin or ancestry, end quote. Foreigners have a fraught and precarious relationship with home. The experience and accusation of being a foreigner is often imbued with negative associations. Racially fueled demands like go home or go back where you came from can provoke visceral fear and ambivalence among those who are viewed as foreigners in a context that they consider home or seek to establish as home. In everyday life, home is where you leave and return to. You all came from home, I think. For those living in diaspora, home is a lot more elusive. Exiles, whether by force or choice or something in between, have left their homes with the prospect of never returning. Thus, exiles and immigrants forge new homes in places where they may never quite feel at home or be perceived as being at home. As we know from the biblical witness and from life experience, home stands at the heart of the exilic condition, whether literal or figurative. In the letter of 1 Peter, the exilic condition stands at the heart of Christian existence. From the opening lines of the letter, the author refers to his audience as the elect who are living as foreigners in the diaspora. The language here gives us a glimpse of the social alienation and marginalization experienced by the addressees as a result of their divinely chosen status. So these terms, elect exiles or foreigners in the diaspora, they prescribe how Peter wants his addressees to understand and posture themselves as foreigners to the values of the surrounding culture in which they were formerly very much at home and felt socially and culturally at ease or very, you know, running around. This is how how they roll. This is what they're comfortable with. Peter uniquely embraces the exilic condition as one that results from God the Father's choosing of believers, whom God he foreknew, and the Spirit consecrated by the blood of Christ for obedience. So his emphasis on foreknowledge in verses 1 through 2 expresses God the Father's loving intentionality and eternal decision in choosing his, these addressees to become his children, if you look at 1 his household, chapter 2, verse 5, four, seventeen, 17, and his people in the very famous 2, 9 through 10. Such divine choosing was not random, it wasn't arbitrary, but the fulfillment of God's plan and the result of God's love. Now the term diaspora literally means the scattering of seed, and it came to denote the dispersion of Jews among the Gentiles outside the Holy Land as a result of involuntary and voluntary forces. Biblical and early Hellenistic Jewish writers frequently characterized Diaspora as a result of God's punishment of Israel for their disobedience. God allowed Israel to experience the misfortune of military defeat, foreign conquest, and geographical displacement. But during the Second Temple period, which is between 516 BCE and 70 CE, there was a change in Jewish understanding of exile as diaspora came to signify marginalization that went beyond forced migration and geographical displacement and encompassed various forms of alienations so in first peter diaspora refers to those who have voluntarily taken up new religious and social identity as christians in fact first peter is the place the only place in the new testament where christians the term christian is used as a badge of honor it's a word meant to stigmatize Christians, but the author utilizes it as a badge of honor. They are not geographically displaced, but socially displaced. Their displacement is not the result of God, God's punishment due to their disobedience, but the result of God's choosing of them and the result of their obedience. Believers are metaphorical, then, metaphorical or religious exiles, who find themselves no longer at home in the dominant culture because of their conversion. They have a new lord, a new way of life, and they enter into a new family. So then in 1 Peter, diaspora, diaspora can be understood as a scattering and a dispersion, but also as a sowing. As the seeds of new birth are sown in diaspora, new identities and relationships and homes emerge, but also new conflicts. Home is a place of comfort, at least when we think of it nostalgically, but when you really think about it, it's a whole place of conflict. <laughs> Struggle and conflict can also characterize home, am I right? And more literally, or physically, think of all the refugees from Afghanistan and Ukraine who've recently fled their homes and home countries because of war and hostility. Homes can also be filled with all kinds of dysphoric emotions. It can be a site of comfort and discomfort of belonging and unbelonging. Nguyen makes the important point that, quote, "...living with a degree of homelessness might be a necessity. There can be a danger in being too much at home, too secure." I think for the author of 1 Peter, there can be a danger in being too much at home and too secure in the dominant culture. Thus, he urges believers to take up residence on the margins, to voluntarily act as foreigners. The letter, you see, is addressed to those who are very much at home in the dominant culture, who are struggling, in fact, to disidentify with the former way of life. They face very real and persistent pressure to conform to the attitudes and customs and behaviors that characterize who they were before becoming Christian and who they are no longer. So the assurance to new birth to a living hope and to the promise of a heavenly inheritance would have brought tremendous hope and comfort to those who were losing their birthright, their inheritance, their social standing, and their relationships. What grows out of new birth is what Joel Green calls the conversion of the imagination. It's a dramatically different way of seeing, of thinking, and behaving. So in being born anew to a living hope, believers have become like foreign-born people. They have become resident aliens. They are now culturally homeless in the sense that their new identity in Christ makes the strange familiar and the familiar strange. We talk about new birth. We talk about being Christian. We talk about that process of maybe becoming Christian even. But we forget that new birth results not just in the comfort of being chosen by God, But it results in conflict. The opposite, it's not comfort, but conflict. New birth, it decenters. New birth, it destabilizes. In 1 Peter 6, or 1 6 through 9, Peter brings together two strange concepts suffering and joy. After describing their heavenly inheritance that does not diminish, degrade, or depreciate in value, the author takes for granted that believers will experience various kinds of suffering and hardship. Their living hope in what God has done and what God will do in the future, that living hope does not take them out of present difficulties, but rather brings them into greater difficulty with those who were once familiar to them and within places and spaces that used to feel at home or like home. A light transformed by Christ's not only refrains suffering as a result of one's following in the way of Christ, but also brings about more suffering because the way of Christ is so contrary to the ways of the world, or it should be. For one, being elect exiles, or those who are born anew to living hope does not guarantee a home that accrues equity. It doesn't ensure a high-powered, socially respectable job. A marriage, children, and the pursuit of happiness. But it does result in life-giving, hope-filled instability. The kind that results in resounding, abundant, paradoxical, unexpected, peculiar, abundant joy. For Christians living in the U.S., the message of 1 Peter does not readily seem applicable. For one, Christians are not foreigners in this country, but make up the majority religion. Being born again often tells us less about a person's theological beliefs and an impetus for spreading the gospel, and more about their identification with a certain political party or forms of reactionary politics. The label Christian has become associated with white nationalism in such a way that the American way has become equated with Christian symbols and references to a Christian heritage that are embodied and represented by whiteness, tribal loyalty, and references to the name of Christ, devoid of living according to the way of Christ. Nearness to God and chosenness by God is thought to be manifest in the blessing of personal freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness at the expense and repression of freedoms of others. Perhaps, then, the message of 1 Peter, with its call to be a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's possession, seems too readily applicable for many Christians living in the U.S., and therein lies the problem. This week, I hope to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange to you as we delve into this incredible letter. And in doing so, may we find ourselves less at home in the text than we thought we would, and perhaps find ourselves confessing to be more at home in the dominant culture, which includes white nationalistic culture, than we'd like to confess. The author of 1 Peter addresses people living on the margins and in precarious social positions within their households and the broader society. And the letter invites us today to take up space, not at the center of power and privilege, but at the margins. Not to idealize the margins, but because it is there that the message speaks life, hope, and joy, and offers a dramatically different way of seeing and thinking and behaving that puts us at odds with the very values and way of life that should become foreign to those following in the footsteps of Christ. So I invite you to sit in the discomfort and the challenge and the conversion of the imagination And allow God to reframe our identity that the text seeks to offer us. To God's chosen strangers in the world of the diaspora, may God's grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen. 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 I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who caused us to be born anew to a living hope, and who may be shaking things up in and around you to reveal a future yet to come, who is able to do abundantly of all that we ask and think, according to the power at work within us, for the glory of God in the churches by Christ for generation to generation, go in peace, go in joy, and go in holy discomfort. Amen. Amen. Good night, and let's pass the peace. Join with me in passing the peace.